the idea that one can be addicted to food is still pretty controversial in the scientific literature. So uh, I just want to acknowledge that you have some researchers who are arguing that food can be addictive um, and then other researchers are not quite convinced yet. But I think one thing that everyone agrees on, and this is why I think it's really a semantic issue, is that people definitely, some people definitely exhibit addiction-like behaviors towards specific types of food. So whether or not you want to call it addiction, it sure as hell looks a lot like addiction. You were just listening to Stefan Guillenay. What's up, my friend? And welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, international speaker and high-performance health coach, Ted Rice. This is a podcast for men and women who are looking to boost their energy and upgrade their health. So get ready to learn proven health, fitness, and mindset strategies to unlock your full potential. Before I talk about today's episode, I want to tell you we are opening Legendary Lean for a limited time. So if you've been listening to the testimonials, the people coming on the show, sharing their experience and transformation in my legendary lean coaching program, and you want to achieve the same results that they're having, that they're experiencing, go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching and sign up now. Again, this is open only for a limited time. So take action now. And I also want to give you a free gift. I've put together a brand new training called how to get fit in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. And let me tell you, this is one of my best, if not the best presentation I've ever put together. It's a free training. You're going to learn how to develop functional fitness. You're going to learn how to do things that are going to help you stay lean and also extend your life. And this is all science-based stuff. So it's no fluff, no pseudoscience, no you know, balancing your chakras because they're rotating in the wrong direction. This is all proven stuff, things that you can start doing right away to get amazing results in your health, in your body, and ultimately your life. So if you want to watch that presentation, go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash free for that free training. So that's legendarylifepodcast.com slash free. Now let's talk about today's episode because what you're about to hear is one of the most incredible conversations that I've had about why we're all struggling with body fatness and being overweight and obesity in the modern world. And you'll hear people, you'll you'll hear a lot of the science-based people come on and talk about, oh, well, it's calories and the calories in and calories out, which is true. Or you'll hear people who are promoting a specific type of diet tell you, well, it's carbs that are making you fat, right? All the ketogenic people say that, or it's sugar that's making you fat. But the truth is there's some truth to what those people say, but they are missing the big conversation. What is that big conversation? It's about our behavior. It's about our environment. It's about the wiring in our brains. It's about how our brain affects our decision-making when it comes to food and how certain foods found in the modern food environment 
hijack those circuits and you're going to learn about food addiction and you're going to learn from Stefan, who is a neurobiologist. This is a guy who studies obesity, but through the perspective of our brain. So you're going to hear that viewpoint, that expertise and that conversation that just isn't being had enough because we love to blame it on sugar. We love to blame it on the government's food pyramid recommendations. We love to blame all these different things. And what we don't say is, hey, why can't I do the things that I know I need to do? Why can't I eat the way I need to? Why can't I choose the foods that I know are good for me? That's the big conversation. And if you want to learn how to beat food cravings, food addictions, and more, this episode is going to help you do that. So without further ado, let's get to the episode with Stefan Guiné. Stefan Guiné, welcome back on the show. Thanks for doing this again. Okay, good to be here, Ted. Yeah, and the first thing I want to jump into is something that you said the last time you were here, and I know it was a long time ago. It was over a year because Skype let me... They, it actually showed me the last time we, we talked. And you had mentioned something on your last interview with me or your first interview with me that a lot of people who are in very good shape, they have a genetic predisposition to be that way. And we didn't really go into it, but and, and into what you meant. And that was my fault for not following up enough. Because I kind of understood uh, based on some of the research that I've read in the past. But a lot of people reached out to me more than usual and they were kind of rubbed the wrong way. And I think it would be interesting to kind of start off with that because the whole thing, especially with Americans and in, in, I guess the whole North American mentality, if I achieve something, if I work hard for my body in the gym, if I'm able to control my desire, my cravings for processed junk food, like that's all 100% me and my effort. But we sometimes don't understand the physiology going on behind the scenes or the genetic predispositions we have. So can we unpack a little bit? I know it was a long time ago, but can you talk to us about how genetics affect some people's physiology and even their psychology and their personality tendencies to make them more likely to get in shape and stay that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as, as you noticed, um, and this is a common thing, it, uh, some people, it gets under their skin to uh, hear that genetics and the way they were raised or other things like that are influencing their traits, such as their physical performance, their intelligence, things like that, uh, I guess people get the feeling that it diminishes their accomplishments. And, but I mean, the fact is that it is influenced by genetics. Everything about you is influenced by genetics. Everything about you is influenced by your environment as well. And so I guess, you know, let's, Let's go to a field that I understand better than any other field to, to get some analogy here. So let's, let's talk about obesity. So we know that differences in body mass index between individuals, so body mass index is a, is a measure of body fatness, 
we know that something like 70% of the differences in body fatness between individuals are accounted for by genetic differences. And not only do we know that from many studies, I mean, I'm talking like dozens of studies that have very, very compelling methodology. Uh, but now we have these studies called genome-wide association studies where we're starting to figure out what specific genetic variants are causing these differences in body mass index. And so we're actually starting to learn what genes are responsible for these differences. Because, you know, we have differences in our genetic material peppered throughout our genome. So each of us has a unique genetic code. We understand that. And it, this is not controversial when we're talking about things like skin color or eye color or hair color or, you know, the shape of your nose or whatever it is. We understand that those things have a genetic basis. But when it comes to things that are a little bit less tangible, we, I guess we kind of forget that genetics can impact those things too. And so in obesity, what we're finding is that there are probably thousands of different genes that impact your body mass index, and each one of them only has a very small effect. So there are tons of different processes that are involved in this. Basically, anything that could be involved in determining your body mass index probably is involved. So your uh, researchers have found genetic influences on how much we eat when we're around tempting foods, how, much, how many calories it takes us to feel full, whether we prefer carbohydrates or fats or proteins in a meal, uh, many other aspects of eating behavior. We know that genetics is involved in all kinds of different personality traits. So how conscientious you are, um, how anxious you are, how prone to depression, pretty much anything, almost anything you can measure in humans is influenced by genetics. That doesn't mean influence. I want to be very clear here because a lot of people get this mixed up. Influence does not mean determined. So in general, for most traits, your genes are not setting in stone exactly how you're going to be. What they are doing is giving you a tendency. And those tendencies can be very strong. So, you know, I talked about obesity and people might say, okay, well, body shape, that's one thing. But Again, we have these differences in personality that have a genetic uh, influence. Differences in, in intelligence have a very strong genetic influence. Uh, this, again, stuff I'm saying here is really not controversial at all within the field of genetics. Um, widely accepted, very well supported. And so um, I guess another thing I would say is like, why is it, you know, people differ across different traits. So like, Let's say some people are really disciplined about their exercise routine and some people are not disciplined, even though they want to be. So why is it that one person is able to effectively implement that and the other person is not? Where did that difference come from in that person's ability to implement? You know, is where did that come from? There's only two places it can come from. Logically, it's either in the genes or it's in that person's environment that influenced how the genes developed your brain and caused it to wire and function. And so I think, you know, it, that doesn't diminish the fact that people work really hard to achieve at a high level. You know, people, I understand, I fully understand that high level athletes are working their butts off and they're being really smart about the, how they train. Uh, and people who are high level intellectuals 
um, you know, scientists or politicians or whatever who's really good at using their brain, they've spent a long time honing those skills and they've worked really hard to get there. And that doesn't, what I'm saying doesn't change that at all. But those people started most likely with tendencies that allowed them to do that, that other people may not have. So like, you know, I'm never going to be in the NBA. I never could have been in the NBA. I do not have genetics that cause a body type that allows me to play in the NBA. Even if, even if I was seven feet tall, I probably still couldn't be in the NBA because I probably just don't have the coordination and the cardiorespiratory fitness. I probably don't have the, I mean, those people are on the extreme end of the spectrum of athleticism. There's probably a lot of different things, both genetic and environmental, that are going into making them successful. And so, you know, I'm, I was never going to be Michael Phelps. I was never going to be Michael Jordan. I have the ability to do different things that maybe those two don't have the ability to do. But I, you know, there's clearly a genetic basis that's about more than just putting your mind to it and working hard. And I think, you know, when people take that mindset of you can do anything you want to do, that's a very inspirational mindset. And, you know, I think it's useful in the sense that it can push us to achieve more than we otherwise would have been able to, but it's not correct. That's not actually true. Sure. We, we can't just do anything we want to do. We have tendencies, we have limitations, we have strengths and, you know, the best way to be, I think is to work with what you have and accept that you're not necessarily going to be able to be, a professional NBA player or football player, et cetera. Yeah, uh, you're bringing up a great point. And I think everybody gets that analogy that you're using right now with the NBA player pro sports because uh, I've got former NFL player friends and uh, one, one of them only lasted a couple years in the NFL before he had to stop because his body, he was a great player, but his body couldn't handle it. And I've had my situation where, you know, I wanted to to get into MMA and, uh, you know, was actually had the skill and the drive, the motivation to do it, but my body couldn't handle it either. And, you know, you see the guys who do handle the punishment and keep coming back and they're not injured. And you're like, something's different because he's not eating the most perfect diet in the world. You know, there's some of these guys, they're, they're not even eating that well sometimes. So it's just... So, so that's the, the physical side, but let's talk about uh, a little bit more about the psychological side and especially because how, well, here's what I'm feeling right now. There's going to be a bunch of people listening to this who are, you know, they lift weights and they're in shape and they're like, Oh no, Stefan, you're rubbing me the wrong way with this talk about, you know, it's taking away from my accomplishments, but I'm more, you know, those people are fine. Right. You know, they'll, they'll get over their hurt ego, but the people who I'm more concerned about are the people who are listening right now and they identify with, oh yeah, I, it takes more food to make me feel satiated. It, I don't like exercise and I have my friends who like, and I, I don't like it. How do we help those people? What can you tell them to overcome maybe those genetic tendencies for their personality not to enjoy exercise or to want to eat things that we know aren't so great for them. How do we help those people, Stefan? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that's a great point that there there are just some people that start from easier starting points and that start from harder starting points. And I think if we don't acknowledge that, we're not really being fair to the people who are starting from the harder starting point. You know, there are people who are who have obesity from a very young age who, as you said, don't like exercise. Exercise tolerance varies quite a bit. I'm lucky I like exercise okay, and so I can force myself to do it, but I don't love it. Like, you know, if it was just a question of pure enjoyment, I wouldn't do it except, you know, going on hikes and maybe bike rides occasionally, but I wouldn't go So running. you don't like sports either. It's just that it's not stimulating enough. Just the exercise isn't stimulating enough for you because I love doing like martial arts I like training with weights, but it's not that stimulating for me. So you don't like it at all, but you you get yourself to do it. Is that what you're saying? No, I can I can enjoy sports. I can enjoy sports where there's like I'm with my friends and I'm doing, you know, some competing uh, stuff like that. But if you're talking about just me going on a jog by myself, that's not enjoyable for me. I don't feel especially good. Um, I feel good afterwards, but it's. Uh, frankly, it's boring. uncomfortable. Yeah, it's boring. It's uncomfortable. And I do it anyway, because I want the benefits. But yeah, I mean, but there are people who love running who just actually enjoy being out there running. And those people have an advantage in terms of their ability to stay fit. Anyway, and then there are people who hate running a lot more than I do. And those people are at a disadvantage. So anyway, to get back to what you said, I think that there are definitely workarounds that you can use. So for physical activity, physical activity is not really my specialty, but I have a couple of ideas. I think, you know, when we're talking about different, uh, when we're talking about different levels of um, enjoyment for different levels of tendencies toward behaviors that are not so healthy in the modern world, we have to remember that our distant ancestors did those things as a regular course of living their lives. And so it's not like it's impossible for us to do it, but I think the best way is just to build it into your life so that you're not saying, okay, it's, you know, seven o'clock on Wednesday, I'm going to go do my spinning class or I'm going to go for a jog or whatever it is, but you're doing something like active commuting where it's like, okay, I'm actually accomplishing a task here that's part of my daily life. I have to get to work. And so I'm going to walk or I'm going to ride my bike or I'm going to drive part of the way and walk the rest of the way. And then when I'm at work, I'm going to take the stairs instead of the elevator. Um, so just kind of like building things in or I'm going to have a push mower instead of a riding mower or I'm going to walk my dog you know, there there are many ways in which we have engineered physical activity out of our lives through the use of technology where Absolutely. we where we can engineer it back in. And I think if you can do that to I mean, there's a lot of people like this. My dad's like this, where he hates exercising for the sake of exercise, but he likes exercise when it when it's accomplishing something. So like he loves to garden. He loves to maintain the trails on his property, stuff like that. He loves to hike. He just doesn't want to like lift weights or go for a jog. That's extremely unappealing to him and he doesn't do it. So I think building things into our lives and having it be purposeful, that is the way our ancestors did it. Our ancestors didn't 
you know, I'm talking distant ancestors, didn't do a lot of deliberate exercise. They, they, it was just part of their lives. They were walking and running and climbing and, and doing those things because they had to. So I think that's the kind of mentality and the type of lifestyle that we're more wired for than the way that we're doing it now. And, and by the way, I have nothing at all against straight up deliberate exercise. I think it's a great tool that we can leverage I'm just saying that if you're someone who has a hard time doing that, it might be better to consider building things into your daily life. Yeah, I, I, I'm 100% with you. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because sometimes I'll have these strength coaches come on the show and brilliant guys, and I love speaking with them. And I know the people who are who do enjoy going to the gym and training, they, they get a lot out of it. But then I know there's people listening like, oh, God. I don't even like doing that stuff. How can I just be more healthy? And Stefan, you're bringing up something so interesting, like how our ancestors used to live, because I'm in Bangkok, Thailand right now. And it's very different here than where I was in Miami Beach. And you, you made a really important observation that we've engineered activity out of our lives. And here, for instance, I am living in an Airbnb apartment right now. There's no stove. There's no oven. I don't. I can't cook here except with the, the microwave. And that's a pretty typical setup here. And what happens is people just don't cook because they go down and they buy food. And so you've got to walk and everybody's walking. And they do have an obesity crisis happening here in Thailand but it's not nearly like it is in the West or in Australia. And you see why that is. And, and it's not all activity. There's also the food, the, the whole unprocessed food is much less expensive than the processed stuff, which is completely the reverse of every industrialized, uh, you know, modernized civilization around. So, but it's so important it's just that sometimes if you have an environment that's already set up against you, you're always fighting that uphill battle. And I, I don't know if I have a question more than just an observation for people listening, just so they understand, like it's an uphill battle if you're living in, I don't know, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina or uh, Chicago or some other place where you just don't really walk that much and you got to get in your car to go everywhere. Do you see that changing in the in the West at all? Do you see a future where we're going to start getting technology to give us back our health instead of, or, or to engineer more healthful activities like daily movement in our routines? Uh, I see a future of that for a minority of people. I think the people who really care and are motivated yeah, the tools are becoming more and more available. I mean, one easy example is step trackers like the Fitbit that track your physical activity and track your sleep. But I mean, I think the problem is that we are, the problem is human nature. And human nature is a very difficult animal to tame. And so if you have people who are highly motivated and who care a lot, then yeah, I think you can adopt these technologies and I think it can help 
And, you know, it's not just about technology. It's also about awareness. People just knowing that it matters a lot um, and trying to do something about it. But um, I think for the average person, I really don't see it changing very much unless we're changing the environment. So creating an environment where the path of least resistance is to walk somewhere instead of getting in your car. The path of least resistance is to get on your bike and ride somewhere basically to where you're lowering the effort bar for physical activity so much that people are doing it naturally instead of having to think like, oh, I better get some exercise today, so I'm not going to use my car, I'm going to walk. That's the type of thing that, in my view, only a minority of people are going to implement, only the people who really care about it. So so basically, I guess to, to answer your question, I don't really see it changing on a national or average level unless we start doing something drastic. Um, but I don't know. You know, the future is uncertain. Like, that's my best guess. But I don't really know exactly what's going to happen in 10 or 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I know. I hear you. And uh, while you were talking, you, uh, I, I just thought of, uh, did, did you see that recent CNN article on Hong Kong being like the next blue zone and how they take all those steps per day, like more than any other city. No, I didn't see that. Well, I, I was just there. Right. And, uh, and in the article, it's kind of funny. They kind of make it like, Oh yeah, they're so interested in longevity. And it's like, Oh, that wasn't exactly my impression. It's like, if you're not buying anything, they don't have places where you can sit down and loiter. <laughs> you're just walking all the time. So, and you're standing and you're walking and you keep walking and, and it's just, there's no loitering, you know, and they have some good things. They have parks and, uh, so there's some really cool parks there, but I, I just thought that was kind of funny that, uh, you know, it's, it's the path of least resistance. There's just nowhere to lounge and loiter around and people's places are so small. It's not like they want to hang out in, uh, in their, in their, uh, apartment, uh, unless they're really wealthy over there. But, uh, just thought I'd bring that up. Hey, um, talking about human nature, I want to get into something that you're, something that you've taught me and something you're just an expert on. And in fact, your, your book was all about this, uh, the hungry brain. I want to talk about the fact that when we eat, our gut sends messages to our brain about the contents of what we just ate. And it kind of gives us a reward. Well, it doesn't kind of, it gives us a reward, especially when we're eating something, well, something that we would call hyper palatable, uh, known to known colloquially as a delicious junky goodness, right? Can we talk about, or can you explain uh, low reward eating and bliss points and how we can use that information to try to tame our human nature so we can be more lean, get, get in control of our eating habits? Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to get into in my book is what exactly is it about food that motivates the brain? So we know that there's certain types of foods that give us really big cravings. Maybe we smell them and all of a sudden we feel hungry. Maybe we can eat them at the end of a meal, even if we aren't hungry anymore. Uh, so what is it about a food? What are the specific properties, the physical and chemical properties of that food 
that actually make it so motivating to us that make us overeat it even when we know we shouldn't. And so um, I looked into this and actually quite a bit of it is known about it. So basically there are certain specific food properties and those properties are fat and uh, starch and sugar and salt and protein and a uh, compound called glutamate, which is the meaty umami flavor in soy sauce and MSG and bone broth and cooked meat. Um, those are things that are specifically detected by receptors in our digestive tract. And those send signals up to the brain that cause the release of dopamine. And dopamine is a reinforcement chemical. So basically it reinforces your behavior. What that means is that if you do something that releases dopamine, your brain makes you more likely to repeat that behavior in the future by motivating you to do it. And so once you've had pizza a few times and your brain knows that it causes a bunch of dopamine release, your brain starts to look for cues that pizza are available. So such as the smell of pizza or the appearance of it or the situation where you had pizza before or you're around people that you usually have pizza with and that will trigger a craving. So that's your brain saying, oh yeah, I recognize this sensory cue. This is associated with dopamine release. So I'm going to motivate you to engage in this behavior. And um, so another thing I want to point out that's really important is the higher, up to a point, the higher the concentration of these nutrients, the more dopamine release you get. So your brain is hardwired to look for high concentrations of these nutrients in foods and to generate a motivational response that we experience as a craving. And, um, and I want to say that so let's let's think about salt, for example. Salt is good up to a point, but it's not good past that point, right? Like you're not gonna mm -hmm. sit you're not gonna sit down and like spoon big spoonfuls of salt into your mouth. Uh, you're not gonna do that with white sugar. You're not gonna do that with glutamate. Uh, you know, so like there's a point you're not gonna drink straight fat. Most people don't aren't like taking shots of vegetable oil. Um, Unless you're drinking the bulletproof coffee, but <laughs> that's a specific subset of people. And so basically, there's a point beyond which it's too much. And so the point at which you're maximizing the uh, reinforcement or the pleasure value of it, that is called the bliss point. So for sugar, the food industry knows exactly where your bliss point is. There's a certain amount of sugar that the average person finds maximally enjoyable and maximally reinforcing, which means maximize the chance of a repeat purchase. And that is the concentration that they use in their sodas, in their cookies, et cetera. Um, and the same for fat, same for salt, et cetera. So when you hit that bliss point, especially if you're hitting it from multiple nutrients at the same time that release dopamine, you're really pushing your brain's buttons hard. I mean, you're pushing your brain's buttons probably a lot harder then our distant ancestors got their buttons pushed by food. And, right. and essentially what that does is it generates an exaggerated motivational response to consume those foods, which causes us to overconsume them. And I think this is just a really basic problem that drives a lot of our excessive eating behavior. Um, and in all of us, like even, even me, I'm a lean person, but and I try not to expose myself to those types of foods, but every now and then I will have them and I will overeat. So I'm not 
immune to it either. I just try to implement strategies to manage that situation. And so, yeah, so the I want to say that this this idea of food reward, the seductiveness of food, in other words, these how these physical and chemical properties come together and stimulate dopamine release in the brain, uh, I want to say that this is ver- a very important aspect of food in terms of its impact on our food intake and our body fatness. The brain seems to care a lot about these particular properties and uses them as a signal to determine not only your your uh, eating drive, but also apparently your uh, how your brain actually regulates your level of body fatness. And so if you're eating foods like this on a regular basis, not only are you going to eat more and gain fat, but you're actually probably going to start defending that higher level of body fatness against weight loss. And that's going to make it a lot more difficult for you to achieve your goals for physical fitness and for body composition. So, and, and Stefan, can you just, uh-huh. you, you said it's good. The body's going to defend the fat loss just to, for people who might be confused about that. Are you talking behaviorally or physiologically? I'm talking about both. Yeah. So, okay, maybe I should dig into this. So the brain regulates, actively regulates body fatness. Um, There is a, what's called a negative feedback loop between your fat tissue and the hypothalamus in your brain that is fairly analogous to how your thermostat works in your home. So a negative feedback loop is something that tries to maintain the stability of a particular variable. So your thermostat in your home is measuring the temperature in the home. And when that temperature deviates from the set point that you've programmed it with, it will kick in either heat or air conditioning to bring the temperature back to that set point. That's a negative feedback loop. It's just a common engineering thing. And there's a ton of these in biology because our bodies have to maintain the stability of a number of different things like your body temperature, your blood pH, your heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of these negative feedback loops in biology, and there's one of them that's very important for regulating body fatness. And it's, so your thermostat measures temperature, your brain measures a hormone called leptin to measure the level of body fat on your body. Leptin is produced by fat tissue. And so um, you have this, this um, feedback loop that's regulating your body fatness. And this is the reason why it's really hard to lose weight. Because once you start to lose weight, this system detects the de- decrease in your body fatness and it starts to implement both behavioral and physiological responses to try to bring the body fat back. And so this is why, you know, if someone loses a bunch of weight, they're not the same as a person who started off at that lower weight. They are going to have higher levels of hunger. They're going to have cravings. They are going to have a lower metabolic rate per unit lean mass. So there are these physiological and metabolic adaptations that occur that are very powerful that try to push us back up to our original level of body fatness. And then conversely, there are other people who can't gain weight. And as much as they eat, they will never gain fat. Um, There are actually studies that support this. You can overfeed people by a thousand calories a day. 
Some people will gain almost no fat. They'll just incinerate all the extra calories. And some people will put every single extra calorie into their fat mass. So there- Can we dig into a, a, a part of what you're saying? Because I want people listening to not come up with certain conclusions. So you're talking about how our bodies, our brains specifically try to maintain a body fat percentage, whatever body fat percentage we're at now. And we it, it uses leptin to do that. And if you try to change one way or the other, you know, there's this feedback loop that says, okay, this guy's not eating enough. Let's make him hungrier and not so motivated to move very much. But just for someone who's listening, who's in a situation where they're perhaps dealing with that exact thing, the physiological mechanisms aren't going to stop them from a calorie deficit will make them lose body fat. Uh, uh, right. The physiology behind this, this, you know, stubbornness of a body fat, it can't stop a calorie deficit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. So this doesn't change the basic physics or what I would even say arithmetic of body fatness that the amount of fat on your body is determined by the number of calories that you're eating minus the number that your body is expending, that is still true. Um, but what this does, this system, it puts pressure on the calories in and it puts pressure on the calories out and tries to change them so that it's maintaining the stability of your body fat level. And so it's not that you can't just eat less and lose fat. You absolutely can do that. But this system is going to make it very difficult for you and in fact, it makes it so difficult that the average person is unable to lose and maintain a large amount of weight through portion control alone. So essentially, just using willpower to try to kind of like plow through these non-conscious systems that are pushing back against you. I'm not saying it never works. There are people who have done it successfully. But for the average person, it's not very effective. They will not lose much weight and they will not be able to maintain that weight loss. Um, so I prefer strategies that work with those systems, such as eating lower reward food. Yeah. And, and, and can you talk a little bit about low reward food and what that means and which foods are low reward and, and how that plays into maintaining a healthy body fat percentage? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the same way that eating very high reward food, food that has multiple nutrients close to their bliss points that are pushing your, your reward buttons and releasing dopamine in your brain. Conversely, if you're eating food that's not releasing as much dopamine, that's not as stimulating to your brain, you will actually, your food, your eating motivation will decline and uh, your set point around which your brain regulates your body fat level will often decline as well. Um, and I, by the way, I don't want to present this as like the, you know, miracle obesity cure that will reverse obesity in everyone. You know, that's not what, that's not what I'm trying to say here, Man, but the low reward diet, that's the next yeah. best selling, you know, diet cookbook. book. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. Bland, bland food cookbook. Yep. That's going to be a hit. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but I think this is kind of a dirty little secret of the the diet industry is that you know you you see these diet books and pretty much all of them have the same message, whether it's explicit or implicit. It is that you're going to be able to lose weight on this diet while eating super delicious food. I mean, this is something you see in almost every diet is about how delicious the food is. And I'm not saying you can't lose weight while eating delicious food. It is possible, but it's going to make it more difficult for you. You're not leveraging an important tool that you could be leveraging. Um, and so, yeah, so eating. So let me get into what I mean by lower reward eating. And I the 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 term I prefer to use is simple food because it's not as stigmatizing. I don't want people to think about just eating like, you know, stale bread and water or <laughs> gruel or, you know, that sort of thing. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about simple foods, foods that are simple, unrefined, lower calorie density, things that are more similar to what our ancestors, our distant ancestors would have eaten with few added calorie dense substances and flavorings. So not using a lot of added fats, not using a lot of added sugars, um, not using a bunch of herbs and spices, not using a lot of salt. Um, so just really, you know, if you're eating a piece of fish, you're eating a piece of fish. If you're eating fruit, you're e if you want something sweet, you're eating fresh fruit. Uh, if you are eating a potato, you're just eating a potato. You're not drenching it in sour cream and butter. So just eating simple, simple foods, it's, it's really not a very complicated thing. And when you do that, you are sending your brain, basically your brain doesn't like it as much, you know, and you, you know this because it doesn't taste as good, right? Like, obviously you'd rather have butter on your potato than not have butter on your potato. Oh yeah. And, and when your brain is not as excited about the foods that you're eating, it just doesn't drive your appetite in the same way. And it doesn't cause your brain to defend a higher body fatness in the same way. And for many people, that will allow them to naturally eat less comfortably instead of having to force yourself and fight against the desire to eat more. You will just naturally comfortably eat less and lose weight also comfortably without triggering all these mechanisms, this what I like to call the starvation response from that part of your brain called the hypothalamus that normally is triggered when your leptin levels start to decline as your body fatness drops. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, when we're talking about this stuff and we're talking about the brain, we're talking about dopamine, we're talking about eating foods that don't trigger that part of your brain that encourages you to start seeking and overeating these, these hyper palatable foods, these delicious foods, you know, it brings up analogies like gambling. I hate gambling. I, I lose 20 bucks and I'm like, I'm out of here. Right. <laughs> but people, it's very exciting for them. Drugs. It's very exciting. And there's always this, you know, there's, what I kind of feel like you're, well, you're, this is not what you're saying, but this is what's coming up in my mind as you talk about this stuff is like, you can't go out on a bender and drink all night and not have something bad happen as a result or, or a side effect or a consequence. You can't gamble like crazy and not have a consequence. 
And likewise, you can't engage in this behavior where you're constantly seeking these these foods that light you up inside. I mean, I was just eating some fruit, uh, which the fruit here in Thailand is delicious. But then there was this uh, coconut ice cream with all these different toppings on it. And it was just, you know, I had some of the fruit. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's fruit so good. But then after a while, I didn't want to keep eating the fruit. But the ice cream, I just, I want to eat a whole gallon of that stuff. It's like if I had a, a, a big carton of it, I wouldn't stop eating. And I guess what I'm asking, what I'm getting around to asking is, is food addiction a real thing? Does it get to that point? And I, I want people to understand who are listening, who are like, oh, maybe I'm just a food addict. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the idea that one can be addicted to food is still pretty controversial in the scientific literature. So uh, I just want to acknowledge that you have some researchers who are arguing that food can be addictive, um, and then other researchers are not quite convinced yet. But I think one thing that everyone agrees on, and this is why I think it's really a semantic issue, is that people definitely, some people definitely exhibit addiction-like behaviors towards specific types of food. So whether or not you want to call it addiction, it sure as hell looks a lot like addiction. And so- So um, would you say you believe in it or- Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that I believe in it. I mean, yeah, and it, it depends on how you want to define addiction. But I think that for all intents and purposes, in terms of the types of behaviors that it generates and the negative effects on some people's lives, yeah, it's effectively addiction. So I, for me, it, it, it's, it's addiction. And I mean, it's, it's not that we're all addicted to food. There's a certain subset of people where if you administer questionnaires to them, that are designed based. So basically you have these researchers who have gone into the drug addiction literature and the gambling addiction literature that we have specific diagnostic criteria for addiction in other contexts. And you can take those and you can translate them into criteria for food. And then you give them as a questionnaire to people, just like you would diagnose drug addiction. And you find that, yeah, a lot of people have, um, what looks to be food addiction. So you, they have a type of uh, relationship with certain types of food that looks a whole lot like the relationship that some people have with cocaine or uh, meth or whatever it is, gambling. So, and I, I'm not saying that food addiction is necessarily going to destroy your life as bad as like meth or, or crack or something like that, but you still have this excessive motivational drive that is seriously harming your life. And so um, that to me is really the crux of it because addiction, as I see it, is really kind of an arbitrary distinction. Essentially, the core of addiction is just a, an excessive motivational state to do something. You're so motivated to do something that it starts to harm you. You know, like let's say you're playing video games so much that you're not able to you're not going to work. You're not having normal social relationships. You're not sleeping enough. Let's say I've been there. Nah. <laughs> let, let's say you're drinking alcohol so much that it, you know your marriage is deteriorating and you're drunk at work, etc. Like you, you have an excessive motivational state to engage in behaviors that are destructive, and 
you you're having a hard time getting out of it. That's that's the really the core of addiction. And it it's because of excessive dopamine release. So everything that is addictive releases dopamine or somehow activates the dopamine pathway. This is really the common denominator as far as we know for addiction. It stimulates that motivating chemical in our brains. And if you get too much stimulation, you get too much motivation and that can be destructive. And so, of course, food stimulates dopamine. We know this. The dopamine pathway was, did not evolve for crack cocaine. It evolved for food and sex and all the good things in our lives. But it gets hijacked by some things in the modern world that are just too good at stimulating that pathway. And modern food is one of the things that's too good at stimulating that pathway. So when you have these foods that are pushing your dopamine buttons really hard, harder than it would have pushed your ancestors' buttons because they didn't have that kind of food, then the brain just starts to do destructive things and engage in excessively motivated behaviors. And so I, I want to emphasize that people who get food addictions they're not getting addicted to celery sticks. They're not getting addicted to plain right. lentils. They're getting addicted to these concentrated calorie-dense processed foods that are very concentrated in these dopamine-releasing nutrients that we were talking about earlier. And so those are the types of foods that trigger addictive behavior. And I want to say, again, so I argued that addiction is an arbitrary threshold. Basically, when your motivation exceeds a certain level, we draw a line and we say, well, above this, it's pathological. Below that, it's normal. But that's totally arbitrary. Motivation is a spectrum. So your motivational level can range between how much you want to eat a celery stick right now and how much you want to eat like chocolate or pizza or ice cream or whatever your favorite food is right now. It's a spectrum. And there's everything in between. And so even if even for people who are not experiencing what we would medically classify as food addiction, these dopamine stimulating foods that are really good at stimulating dopamine are still going to give us are still going to increase our motivation to eat and are still going to push us to overeat, even if we're not addicted. So addiction is just one it's the extreme end of the spectrum that affects all of us. This food affects all of us, but some of us are affected more strongly than others. And so, um, yeah, and so like with cigarette, I think cigarettes are a really great analogy. Cigarettes release dopamine. They're very addictive uh, and they're difficult to quit. So if you're trying to quit, the best way to do it is to, or I, I should say, a very effective tool that you can implement is to not expose yourself to the cues associated with smoking cigarettes. So you don't hang around people who are smoking. You don't leave packs on the counter. You don't go into the convenience store where you used to buy cigarettes. You don't give your brain those triggers that says, hey, this is a situation where you can have cigarettes because that gets your dopamine spiking again and triggers your motivational state, triggers your craving, and that's very difficult to fight. So the same thing with food. To manage this, whether you're, whether you're actually addicted or not, if you want to manage it, you want to limit your exposure to sensory cues that remind your brain of those problem foods. So you don't want to keep them in, on the counter ideally not even in your house at all. You don't go to the places where you would normally eat those things. 
it, the more you can control your food environment and not expose yourself to those cues, the less you're going to be triggering your brain into that excessive motivational state that whether or not we call it addiction is going to drive you to eat too much. Yeah, brilliant point, Stefan. I mean, you made a great point about food addiction. You you said you believe in it and you think it's a thing, but regardless of that extreme part of the spectrum, even if you're a person with no addictive tendencies in general, when you eat twice baked potato filled with sour cream and cheddar cheese and bacon and or you're the on the other side that likes the sweet stuff and for me it would be Joe Stone Crab's key lime pie in in Miami Beach with the delicious buttery graham cracker crust and ice cream key lime <laughs> pie filling like you're going to be driven to overeat those things no matter what your natural tendencies are because of just the effect that it has and analogy that you're drawn between, you know, cigarettes and, and drugs more specifically, we think about like uh, cocaine, for instance, comes from coca leaves and coca leaves have been used in Peru to brew a tea that helps them with altitude sickness and uh, helps the Peruvians. And it's people aren't killing each other or going crazy or it, it's not affecting them the same way, but cocaine and, and even crack cocaine it has a very different effect and one can't help to make the connection there between, like you said, all these modern foods that are kind of like the cocaine version of, uh, of those non-processed foods. I mean, I had this delicious cheese croissant the other day and it was just I wanted to eat like five of them. Luckily, I only bought one, but it was so delicious and buttery and cheesy and that that doughy croissant bread. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah. Man, is the low reward I don't I don't know even how to follow that up, but just I guess that low reward and understanding that this is something that we're all kind of fighting if you live in the modern world and you're not in the you know, Samani tribe in Bolivia or the Hadza in Africa, this is something that we're all fighting. Yeah, absolutely. And let me develop the analogy a little bit more. I think it's a very apt analogy. As you said, the coca leaf is something that was traditionally used medicinally and as a mild stimulant. And people aren't really getting addicted, even though it's cocaine, it's the same molecule, but it's at a low concentration and it's tied up with all these other things that are in the leaves. Um, but it's a dopamine stimulating molecule. It is cocaine. And so through the use of technology, we were able to purify the active dopamine releasing ingredient, cocaine, and turn it all of a sudden into a quite addictive drug. And then through another step of technology, we freebased it, which makes it able to rapidly cross cell membranes and get into the brain. And that became crack cocaine, which is even more addictive. And so Basically, through the progress of technology, we have turned, we've purified the active ingredient of the coca leaf, the dopamine stimulating active ingredient, and we've made it more and more concentrated and powerful. And that's exactly what we've done with food. So if you look at, I like to use glutamate as an example. The original source of glutamate was cooked meat. We've probably been mm. cooking meat for hundreds of thousands of years. 
cooked meat has a bit of glutamate in it. That's probably why we like the taste of glutamate is because it indicates cooked meat. And then eventually we developed technology of making pots and then we could make bone broth. And we've been doing that for many thousands of years. And that is a more concentrated source of glutamate. Then we developed the technology to make soy sauce and fish sauce, which is a much more concentrated source of glutamate. We did that a couple thousand years ago. And ultimately, this process of concentrating the dopamine spiking active ingredient in, in meaty tasting foods culminated in uh, the early 1900s with the isolation of monosodium glutamate, which is pure crystalline uh, glutamate with sodium. So basically, we did the exact same thing to food that we did to cocaine. We found the active ingredient. We concentrated it so that we could add it to food and stimulate our own dopamine and pleasure to the maximum degree. This is what humans do. We find things that uh, motivate us, that, that intrinsically stimulate our dopamine pathways, and we maximize those and accentuate them over time. I mean, I think pornography is, is a great example. Like, you know, the internet, the internet is what, like 83% porn? I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it's a lot of the internet. It's a lot. Is porn. Yeah. And this is just, you know, we are wired to have dopamine spike when we're, you know, experiencing certain sensory cues that indicate sex. And uh, so, like, this is just a basic drive that we have. And porn is taking this to an art form to, like, stimulate that so much, you know, probably more than our ancestors would have, or certainly there's less of an effort barrier for it than our ancestors had. And so I think in all these different domains of our lives, whether it's drugs or social media or food or pornography or video games, We've just figured out really effective ways to spike our own dopamine, and that creates difficult to control behaviors. And food's just one example of this broader picture that we're really good at doing as human beings with the addition of technology and affluence. Yeah, I think people get that so much so that, or or at least at some level, maybe not so consciously and, and definitely not the the way you understand it being a neurobiologist Stefan but you know I was thinking the of the hashtag food porn right you know it's like some degree we get it and Stefan I, I know we've talked about we've talked about low reward eating and in controlling our food environment and things like that man what do you see? as the answer to controlling our behaviors in this modern world that we've created with all these things going on with the Facebook, with the, I mean, you see it happening on Facebook. I know you're not on Facebook a lot because we've had, had kind of a brief conversation about that, but you see people who are obviously they're just on Facebook all the time and I'm on it a lot, but I'm like doing business stuff. And definitely I'm on it way more than I should be, but we see all these things kind of taking over people's lives. How do we get our life back? Yeah, that's a big question. And I honestly don't know if I'm the best person to answer the the broader question you're asking. But I, I will say that 
The problem, I, I believe that humans are not really designed to swim upstream against cultural norms, to swim upstream against what everyone else around them is doing. And so we tend to fall into default behaviors that everyone else is doing. So if everyone else is using Facebook, if everyone else is driving instead of walking, if everyone else is eating unhealthy foods, et cetera, it takes a lot more effort to break out of that as an individual and go our own more healthy, productive way. Well, you don't want to be the weird guy, Stefan, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's it's more than just that. It's I mean, there is a social element to it, but it's effortful. You know, if you're having to yep. think through things and decide, no, I'm not going to do the default. I'm going to do something different. That is effortful and requires it requires cognitive effort to figure that out and then implement it. And so it's there's just an effort barrier there. And some people can do it, but it's a challenge, I think, for all of us. Yeah. So I think that that's the problem is we're swimming in this cultural soup that is pushing us in certain directions. And it's not it's not holding a gun to our heads. You know, it's not like we can't change, but it makes change more difficult. And it makes, I think, healthy engagement with food and and other things more difficult. And and by the way, I'm not like a crank who thinks, you know, the modern world is terrible. Uh, I think there's a lot of good things yeah. about the way we live today. So it's not You're not that. living in the woods. You're not in yeah. the you're not in That's the right. African savanna. <laughs> but at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there are drawbacks and weird ways in which the modern world is not playing that well with our with our brains. And so I think it's really important to recognize that we have, you know, the human brain is not a perfect blank slate that can be molded in any way and be constructive in any situation. The human brain has a lot of hardwired stuff that kind of pushes us around and uh, pushes us toward in a way certain different things. And um, those are things that we inherited from our distant ancestors. So these tendencies, these non-conscious brain circuits, some of which I touched on, um, some of which we touched on today, but I write a lot more about them in my book. These non-conscious circuits were designed for a specific scenario that they're no longer operating in. So these things that push us to overeat were essential for the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. It was really important for them, and that's why there's such powerful circuits. But today, they're not operating in the same capacity. But the general point I'm trying to make here is that you have to recognize that we have these circuits that we inherited from our distant ancestors that sometimes make things difficult for us today and sometimes make things awkward for us. And I think that's the first thing is just to say, yes, we have these circuits. It's not necessarily my fault that I am uh, overeating when I encounter certain types of food. This is brain wiring that I encountered. Some people have it worse than others. Uh, sorry brain wiring that I inherited, I should say, from my distant ancestors that some people express more than others. Um, it's not a failure of willpower. It's this brain circuit. So how can I work with this brain circuit to um, try to achieve my goals more comfortably and more easily than just trying to butt heads with it all the time and then blame myself? So in the realm of food, that's where I know the most about it. And 
my belief is that if we can understand these brain circuits and know really what they're looking for and how they operate and what cues determine their activity, then we can really start to give them the cues that are generating outputs that support our goals, support our conscious, rational, healthy goals, rather than undermining them at every turn. And so I talk a lot more about this in my book, and I I can't cover everything here, but I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. So those circuits that generate our motivational states, uh, the basal ganglia and dopamine, they basically the way it works, as I said before, is that those motivational states are triggered by sensory cues that were previously associated with dopamine release. So if you ate a slice of pizza and you got a big dopamine boost, the next time you smell pizza or you see the box or you're in the place where you ate it, you're going to get another dopamine spike and you're going you're gonna, to um, experience that motivational state, which we commonly call craving. And, uh, and that's going to be really difficult to fight. So basically, the key is controlling those sensory cues, just like you would do if you're trying to quit cigarette smoking. So you don't go to places where there's going to be the smell of pizza, you don't let yourself see the pizza, you don't go to a place where you habitually eat pizza, you don't hang around in situations where you're used to eating pizza. You don't give your brain a cue that says, hey, this is a situation in which you can get this awesome dopamine spiking food because that's when your brain's going to kick in that motivational state. So it's all about controlling your food environment. So at home and at work, you don't want to have food cues around you. So you don't like you don't want to have any food at all within arm's reach for for most of your day except at mealtime. No food within arm's reach. Ideally no food visible anywhere. But um, I think it's okay to have certain types of foods in your kitchen, such as things that you would be okay eating, like um, fresh fruit or nuts in shells, unsalted nuts in shells, <laughs> things that, yeah, things you have to work a little bit for. You create a little effort barrier, and the food itself is not so delicious that you're going to graze on it or you're going to eat it even if you're not hungry. That's the kind of food environment you want to have. And ideally, there's no ice cream in your freezer. There's no chips in your pantry. Even things that are not directly visible, the knowledge that that is available can also trigger cravings in some people more than others. So it's so if you don't have ice cream in your house, it's not just that it makes it really hard to eat ice cream. It's not just the physical barrier. You actually will crave it less because when you're in a situation where your brain knows it can't get it, it will not generate that motivational state. Usually, I'm not saying this is always true. Sometimes we just get cravings that pop up out of nowhere, but it will certainly reduce the cravings quite a bit. So that's one thing. That's one way we can work with these brain circuits to make our lives easier so the alternative, by the way, to that would be to have like, you know, just to take the complete other end of the spectrum would be to be surrounded by all kinds of foods you love. You know, there's brownies coming out of the oven all the time. Mm. There's there's uh, bacon on the stove. There's chips, open bags of chips on the counter. There's a six pack of Coke. And then, and the, so the alternative strategy would be like, 
saying, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to leave all these things on the counter. I'm going to leave all these cues in place, but I'm just going to cut my portion size. I'm only going to eat half as many calories as I was before. You're putting yourself in a very difficult situation there. I'm not saying it's impossible to do, but most people will not be successful in that kind of a situation. We've seen this over and over and over again, that, that just straight up cal- uh, portion control is not that sustainable for most people. So controlling the cues, working with those motivational systems so that they're supporting your healthy goals, controlling your your food environment is for most people going to be a more sustainable and effective way to go. So that's one thing. Another thing is controlling your satiety. So there's a system in your brainstem that generates the feeling of satiety or fullness as a meal progresses. Most people think, you know, we intuitively think that satiety or fullness occurs when our stomach is full. It's literally your stomach can't hold anymore and so the meal is over. But that's actually not correct. And you may have noticed that it takes a lot more food to feel full sometimes than at other times. Like if you've just exercised a bunch, all of a sudden your stomach seems a lot bigger. And the truth is that your stomach can hold a huge amount of food. Your stomach is generally not full at the end of each meal. That feeling that you experience is generated by the brain, a part of your brain called the brainstem, and more specifically, nucleus tractus solitarius, that accumulates information about what you ate as your meal progressed and decides when you've had enough and broadcast that signal to the rest of your brain. But it turns out that the amount of satiety that your brainstem is generating has a lot to do with the types of foods that you're eating. So, uh, and let me rephrase that. The, The number of calories that it takes you to achieve that feeling of fullness or satisfaction or satiety at the end of a meal differs greatly depending on the type of food that you're eating. And this is really important because that feeling of fullness, this is how we normally interact with food is we just keep eating until we hit that feeling of satisfaction. And then we're like, okay, meal's over. If you still feel hungry, you're going to want to keep eating. If you don't feel hungry anymore, you're going to be done with your meal. So the amount of calories that it takes us to reach that point that terminates our meal is a major determinant of how many calories we eat at each sitting. And so this is a really powerful lever. And uh, so certain types of food create more satiety per unit calorie than others. These are really mostly really simple food properties. So the calorie density of the food, so how rich it is would be like the colloquial way to say that. Foods that are lower in calorie density create more satiety per calorie. So like a bowl of oatmeal is going to create more satiety than an equivalent number of calories of crackers because that oatmeal has a lot of volume and weight um, that's coming from water, whereas the crackers don't. So it fills your stomach up more for the same number of calories. Um, And that actual stomach expansion is an important signal that the brainstem listens to as part of generating satiety. And so... That's one is calorie density. Another one is uh, palatability. That's a really big one. So how enjoyable, how seductive that food is, the better it tastes, the less full it makes you feel per calorie. 
So basically, when your brain is really loving a food, it's going to shut down your satiety mechanisms, or I should say it's going to attenuate them so that it takes more food so you can get in more of this really great food. The third one is fiber. So higher level fiber create more satiety per calorie. Uh, and then protein. Protein creates more satiety per calorie. So something like uh, fresh meats or fish or eggs, that sort of thing tends to be, or beans, tends to be more filling per calorie than other foods. And so the big picture that emerges here when you put all this together is foods that we intuitively view as unhealthy and fattening, like pizza and brownies and cake and candy and things like that, those tend to have these properties that make them not very filling. So high calorie density, high palatability, low fiber, often low protein, but not always. Um, and they kind of fit this profile. And so I think this really explains at least part of the reason why those foods are fattening is it just takes more calories of those foods for us to feel full. So we really <laughs> overeat. We overeat these foods, but at the end of the meal, we don't feel any more full than if we had eaten whole foods. And so on the other end of the spectrum, we have unrefined lower calorie density foods like fresh fruit and fresh meats and vegetables and uh, tubers like potatoes, whole grains and beans, eggs. Those things tend to be more filling per unit calorie and they allow us to eat fewer calories at a meal while still experiencing the same level of fullness or satiety at the end of a meal. So, so I just described two ways that understanding those brain systems can help us give them the right cues to allow them to support our healthy goals and our, our goals for our own eating behavior and body composition and then there are others that I talk about in the book. Yeah, and if you're interested in more of what Stefan is talking about, definitely get The Hungry Brain. I'll have the link to that on the show notes for this episode because it's such an, a great book that goes into detail about all these systems that, you're, uh, that you've been explaining for us. And Stefan, man, what, what a brilliant interview today. You just explained, you gave a clinic on why diets fail, why willpower isn't enough. And this is why I wanted to have you on again, because I don't think this message is getting out enough. I think people are starting to understand like, oh, well, I can't... Uh, you know, the human body has limitations. I can't, you know, jump out of a window and expect to land on my feet and harm free. I, I can't go out into outer space and without a spacesuit, even if I really, you know, there's like this, this personal development type of belief that some people have that, oh, we're just capable of anything. You know, if we just put the power of the mind first, right? But we have limitations and, and I think people get that when you start talking about it, but I think much less intuitive or obvious rather are these things that you're talking about where we just, at least in the West, we typically just chalk it up to moral failure. Oh, I'm lazy. I'm, you know, I'm, 
I'm undisciplined and, and I have no self-control. I'm just a slob. And it's not true at all. We all suffer from the same thing, just to varying degrees. And, and you've beautifully illustrated and explained what's at work here. And I just can't thank you enough for, for the work that you're doing. It's this, the neurobiology. It's just uh, so important that people start to understand what's at work behind our actions and our desires and our cravings. So, Stefan, man, we we definitely have got to do this again because we're we had some other things we we're going to talk about. But I really think now is the time to end this to to let people think about all the things that you talked about and all the solutions that you gave as well. Thank you so much. Where would you like people to go learn more about you? Well, first of all, glad you enjoyed it. So I have a website, stephanguiana.org, and if you don't want to spell that, which I don't blame you for, uh, you can go to wholehealthsource.org, and that'll take you to the same place. I, I write like maybe a post a month there, so I'm not super active these days, but um, you can see some of my work there. I, I'm also more active on Twitter. It Love ranges- your Twitter. Oh, thank you. Love yeah. it. It ranges from things that are general audience oriented to uh, a lot of science papers that I tweet out as well. So I think it can be useful for a wide range of people, but not necessarily every tweet will be in everyone's uh, ballpark. Uh, But yeah, my Twitter handle is at WH source. And then I have a bunch of talks on YouTube. If you just search for my name, you can find talks that I've given and I speak periodically at different conferences. Excellent. And if you are in the health and fitness field, you need to go and study the types of things that uh, the the type of information that Stefan is putting out there, because if you're dealing with people, this is what you're dealing with. And if you're wondering why you can't get your clients to adhere to new behaviors, even though you talk, you talk to them so in depthly about the importance of, I don't know, not eating sugar or, you know, this is what's at work here. And you need to start to understand it and explain it to your clients and give them solutions that actually work with uh, our wiring. So I will have all those up on the show notes for this episode. Make sure you check Stefan out on social media as well. And Stefan, man, thank you again so much. It just, you ran a clinic on human behavior and a lot of the things that we're all facing and and that we all take to heart and we we think it's our fault when it's not the whole picture it's it's the situation that we're all dealing with in modern life so thank you so much for shedding light on that yeah my pleasure thank you ted that wraps up today's episode, and I hope you enjoyed Stefan Guillenay. He's been on the show once before, and he is just one of the guys who is talking about the things that nobody else is talking about, that conversation that we're not having about how our brains, how our lifestyle, how our environment all work together to block us from doing the things that we need to do to improve our health, like choosing better or making better decisions with our food and why following a diet for a little while works so well, but then we fall back into those old habits because just restricting ourselves, it just doesn't work, especially if we don't change our food environment, especially if we don't 
change the way we eat with what Stefan called food reward. It's these things that matter the most so that we can have control over ourselves and control over our behavior. And let me tell you something. There's a reason I asked Stefan to be back on the show and have this conversation. It's because this is behind it all. Whether you want to choose a ketogenic diet, a low-fat diet, a do intermittent fasting, whatever it is, you are always going to be dealing with this brain of yours that's hardwired to make choices based on this evolutionary programming that has been there for a very long time. And this is why a lot of diets fail. And this is why a lot of people can make short-term progress, but then slip back into old habits, especially when the stress comes in, especially when they followed a diet, but they didn't learn along the way. They didn't develop the knowledge and the skills and the habits to keep them on that lifestyle because it's really about adopting a lifestyle. It's about adopting a mindset. And that's why I'm so psyched and excited to announce that we're opening Legendary Lean for a limited amount of time. And let me tell you, we help you with this in Legendary Lean. We, I, I've read Stefan's book. I know about the science of food addiction. Obviously not like Stefan does, but I know about it enough to explain it to you and to help you manage it in a practical way. If you want to achieve the same results that you've heard from some of our legendary lean members like Todd, like Art, like Rich, like Sarah, then I want you to go to legendarylightpodcast.com slash coaching and sign up now. Again, it's open for a limited amount of time for a limited amount of people. And don't forget about my free training, how to get fit in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, where I'm going to share things that I've never shared before on the podcast, in my articles, only for my one-on-one clients or, or my coaching group clients. They get this information, but you haven't heard it yet. Make sure you go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash free to get that free training now. That's all I've got. I hope you enjoy this and I will speak to you soon.